One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today, I've got Ron Diamond with me. I heard him speak originally, I can't remember, a number of years ago at a family office conference in Chicago where he gave a presentation about the development of family offices. And he's been in the space. He's an expert in this world. And I'm really excited he agreed to be on the show because I think he produces some really good content and he's about to launch what is a very exciting conference that we're going to get into later in the conversation. But Ron, thanks so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So let's start very basic. What is your definition of a family office? You're giving me the hardest question first. <laughs> it's a really good question. You know, what was interesting and it's funny and I will answer that, but I, I, was, I spoke at Stanford and I was giving a conference and I had five family offices up there and I asked them, I said, your family, what's the family office and why did you create it? And I got five totally different answers uh, and none of them were right. None of them were wrong. So it's, look, it's opaque. I mean, what a family office should be is a way to, it it should be holistic. It shouldn't just be about creating alpha. And I think many of these family offices right now, first of all, the model doesn't work because only 25% of families make it to G2, 10% make it to G3, and 5% make it to G4. So the whole model doesn't work. And people, if they have a liquidity event, they're focused on, I want to invest in a cool venture capital or real estate or private equity deal, right? Or cannabis deal, whatever it is. The first thing they should do is talk to an estate planning attorney, which is boring. But without that structure, without the foundation, the other stuff's not going to work. So it's kind of backwards. And then the other thing is with these family offices, you know, in the last probably post-crash, pre-pandemic, you know, these family offices, they all want to do direct deals, right? And that's kind of the big trend in this space right now. But the rationale is flawed. The rationale that I don't want to pay fees. That's You don't do an investment because you don't want to pay fees. And the problem is that everything post-crash, pre-pandemic, or most things went up. Private equity, venture capital, real estate, 
I mean, Bitcoin, whatever it is, that it probably went up. So people thought they could do it, but most of these family offices don't have the bandwidth to do these direct deals. So what I see is a lot of people who have a lot of money, but again, the model doesn't work and we're trying to tr- change that. And that's what I'm creating at Stanford. Yeah, I think it's a good answer because there is no right answer. Me personally, I think it's a corpus of assets meant to maintain a quality of life over multiple generations and you know avoid paying taxes is kind of okay, the so way. You, so your, your answer was a better answer than mine. <laughs> well, that's kind of just the way I think about it. And that's where, to your point, I think what I've been seeing in the space, because I've been involved for maybe a decade, not as long as you, but it's almost become an ego thing for some people that they just want to have a family office. But you can be an ultra high net worth individual or family and not have a family office, right? It's more of a mindset that you know you want to maintain something over a multi-generation time horizon, but it's a conscious decision. And it's not just something that you do so that you get invited to conferences or that you can have a, a business card. But I've seen that, I think, with the proliferation of these private equity groups going out there deploying capital and giving people liquidity events, it's almost like it, it, the definitions become looser recently because they're so it's just they're just abundant now. Right. Well, you know, one of the, the key things really one of the key questions really is how much does it cost to have a single family office? And my and again, I'm not right. This is just my opinion, but I'm I think I'm right. You need if you're going to invest in the private markets, which is private equity, venture capital, real estate, and do due diligence properly. You need about 500 million, and period. If you're going to do just the public markets, maybe you could do it for 250. But I would tell you, there's a ton of family offices, or people say they're family offices with less. And again, it's their money; they can do whatever they want with it. But in general, if you look at what the cost structure is, most of these family—if you're—if you have a hundred million dollars, that's a ton of money. But you're—you don't have enough money to have a single-family office. So you're better off going to a multifamily office, and that's why multifamily offices were created. So I think how it's going to play out is a lot of these single-family offices, as or when we head into a recession and the market goes down, because the market doesn't keep going up like it's been going forever. Um, a lot of these single family offices are going to just wash their hands and say, I'm out and switch to multifamily offices. And then the big single family offices will continue to get bigger and bigger. And they really will institutionalize it because if, if it's done properly, the family office model, in my opinion, is a superior model to, to anything out there. Yeah. I mean, we're very much to your point. You know, we've had a single family office for a long time. We're about to go through a, a generational transition and Two or three years ago, we ran an RFP process to move to a multifamily office because the cost structure was becoming prohibitive. We didn't, G2, nobody wanted to run it day to day, right? I mean, we had a cool infrastructure, but we all have day jobs. And there's some really great multifamily office platform solutions out there that were a really good fit for us. And it's worked out really well, frankly. We still get to do private deals, but we have concierge kind of soup to nut services from tax, estate planning, and investments. And the cost is is much lower than it was. I'd be curious since you've been in the space a long time. You say five hundred million. What was it twenty years ago? You think less? You know, I, I don't know the exact number. I mean, first of all, twenty years, seventy percent of the family offices that exist started after two thousand. So, like this whole family office phenomenon, it's all new. So, I, I don't know the answer. What it would it cost twenty years ago? I can just tell you right now, and I've done the math. If you reverse engineer it, it, it does pencil out. You do need about five hundred in order for it to make economic sense for you to have the in-staff accounting, for you to have the in-staff legal, philanthropy, governance, all of that stuff. That's what you need now. And so, what do you think has driven 
uh, not the cost structure necessarily, because I think we all understand inflation and just, you know, everything going on there. But what do you think it was starting in 2000 where this became de rigueur and, and it's just this whole space has exploded? Well, part of it has to do with the internet, right? With technology, because now people can create wealth a lot quicker than they could. Before, if you look at the Vanderbilt's, the Carnegie's, the Mellon's, these are multi-generational things. Now you can create an app and you know you can sell it for half a billion dollars. So I think that's part of it. The real growth has actually come after the crash. And, and I think that was really what, what really it caused that to really excel was the fact that family offices who were investing in Wall Street and the market crashed, they lost trust. And, you know, I used to run a hedge fund and hedge funds have an ability to put up something called gates, which means you could put up a gate and the, the buyer, the person can't sell. Well, these family offices didn't know that. So they found that out. So I think that a lot of the post-crash, a lot of this, the reason for people investing in family offices and pulling money away from Wall Street, it all has to do with trust. And it all has to do with alignment of interest. Because at the end of the day, the way everything is structured, I mean, Wall Street is, there's wonderful parts of it. I started my career at Drexel Burnham. But if you look, the lowest common denominator, it, it all has to go back to alignment of interest. And I think what the family offices want, people are going to lose money in deals and not everything is going to work out great. You're not going to get 10X on every deal, but people just want to know they're being treated fairly. And, and what's happened in the industry, I think, is that you know private equity and venture capital in the early 80s disrupted the public markets because it was a better model. I mean, the, I used to run a hedge fund. So uh, companies got to report to a guy like me or another analyst every 90 days. You cannot run a company efficiently that way. So what they do is they manage the earnings to keep the analysts happy and to keep the stock price up. Private equity and venture capital came into the market because it was a better model, 2% just to cover the overhead. And 20, I only make money if you make money. What better model is there? Well, what happened is that both the private equity and the venture capital industry in general bastardized the business and it became an AUM game. And now what should be a $200 million fund to $2 billion fund. And people are making money on the 2%. Not they're making the money on the 20% too, but they see the 2% as an annuity. So these funds are becoming too big and that's an inherent conflict. And I think that, in, in, and with what's happened with Wall Street is one of the reasons why family offices to say, look, at the end of the day, I just need to know what's real. I just need to be able to trust the people I'm working with. And they lost a lot of trust in Wall Street. And that's really what's, what, what ex excelled a lot of the growth post-crash. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And this is one of the weirdest phenomena that I've seen recently is, you know, when I when I talk to investors that are high net worth individuals or families and they tell, they say, oh, you know, I don't trust private equity. I don't understand it. I'm just in the market. I tell them, well, listen, you know, JP Morgan, Golden, Blackstone, all of these big groups that do a lot of private equity investing are publicly traded. But I don't think the stock analysts understand anything beyond their ability to gain AUM and to raise capital because I don't think they understand carried interest. It's just bizarre to me that they're publicly traded companies that are in the private equity business themselves. So I, I completely agree with your observation. A question for you, talking about family offices and direct investing. Do you think that's do you think that's serendipitous that it's dovetailed with this quote unquote democratization of access to alternatives into the retail space? Or is this just the direction everything is headed in financial services? I think it's a combination of things. I do think that, you know, when I ran my fund in the 90s, it was not challenging to create alpha in the public markets. I 
think today it's very hard to create alpha in the public markets. I just have money in ETFs, that's it. And I could argue with people and you know, I, I think I'm right. It, it just, it's hard to make money to, in the public markets, the way it's structured. Having said that, alternatives, private equity, venture capital, real estate, credit, you know, alternative investments, that's really where the growth is. And that's where, you know, you're, it's an illiquidity premium, but it, as long as you're, you, you have enough liquidity to tie it up for a certain amount of time, you are getting paid to do that. And so I think there's been a massive growth in private equity and venture capital and real estate investing over the past 20 years. And I think that's going to continue. But what I do think is going to happen is I do think that family offices, they will never replace private equity and venture because those are massive industries, but they're going to slow, they are slowly disrupting and they'll continue to disrupt them more and more. And as family offices become more professional, more institutional, less siloed, that's going to continue because the, the model of the family office is a superior model. So I want to dig into that because it's fascinating to me. We've seen tech disrupt Wall Street, right? Where you know it, it no longer has a moat around accessing private equity and venture capital. To your point earlier, where they made just so much money in the '80s, '90s, and 2000s, and some of these families, you and I both know the really big ones. They operate like their own asset management firms with different silos, different food groups, different private equity, venture capital, real estate internally. Are they almost becoming like a new Wall Street themselves? The answer is yes. So if you look at like for like the Pritzkers, yeah, the I'm thinking of Pritzker, right? I mean, they just they have so many different food right. groups available. So the, what? So the, you look at the Pritzkers, you look at the Dells, you look at, I mean, some of the big big family offices. They've institutionalized it, and they compete directly with Carlisle and Blackstone, and and, and they can do they can go head to head. And again. The, the reason it's a superior model is if you think about it, um, private equity and venture capital, they're compensated and their, their, their model is to flip a company every three to five years, maybe six, seven years, but typically three to five years. That's not really the best way to have, grow wealth long term. I mean, the best way to do it is if something's working, continue to hold it. So the problem is that these private equity firms oftentimes they'll sell something, they're looking at it um, because they want to start fund two or fund three and raise more money. But a family office has something called patient capital. And patient capital is something that you've heard some about, but you'll be hearing, I write a lot about it and I speak a lot about it. You'll hear a lot more about it in the next five to 10 years. Patient capital is the single biggest advantage that family offices have. So you let's say you're a bright kid and you came out of Stanford or Harvard and you've got a great idea. You go Typically what you do, you go to a venture capital firm and you know, hopefully you can land a Sequoia or an EA or whatever. The problem is that you're, if that happens, and that's great, you're one of 20 companies. And let's say your company, it took a couple of years to get off the ground. And then in year three, it's starting to do okay. And then you really start to see it skyrocket. You're just one 20th of their portfolio company. They will sell you when it's appropriate to sell you for their fund. A family office has patient capital. They could hold a company for 30 years. They don't care. And if you look at the cost involved in selling and then rebuying, et cetera, and the taxes that are involved in it and the friction, if you have something that's good, you're better off holding it. Family offices can do that. Private equity and venture capital, it's not modeled to do that. So I think what's happening is more and more of the private equity firms are now, the big ones are starting to have what they call permanent capital models which are copying the the family offices. But the lowest common denominator, it's just alignment of interest. It's just 
what makes the most sense. And to flip a company every three to five years as your model is not a solid model. And so my question is, <laughs> how are all of these larger funds continuing to just have new record-breaking AUM capital raises? Are they just inst- are they becoming just purely institutional LPs and the families are smartening up? Or how does that work? If I believe I agree with you with this trend that you're discussing. Well, it's it's first of all, it, venture capital and private equity are massive markets, and they will always be massive markets, and there's always a place for them. But if you look at what was happening pre-pandemic, when prices were really inflated, I mean, I saw I see a ton of deals. I saw people pay for deals that you scratch your head. They're they're there's no way they can make money on that deal, but they bought it because they have to deploy the capital. A family office, if a deal if it's overpriced, they'll just sit out. They'll just say, "I'll pass on this one and we'll go to the next." Private equity and venture capital can't do that, right? They have to deploy the money. So that's one of the problems. So you you saw a lot of money chasing deals. And again, I would scratch my head in the families that were looking at the deals too. Like, yeah, I'll pay X and I can pay 3X for it. And that's basically what happened. So what I see, I, I look at this through a kind of a unique lens because I ran a hedge fund and I kind of got into the family office world. It was a bit serendipitous. I just started investing and then I just invested with, they didn't call them family offices in the 90s. They just called them rich people. So I had a bunch of rich people who are now family offices and I put in a little bit, they put in a lot and we do deals and I kind of act as a funnel. And so I get better deal flow, better execution. That's kind of how it started. But what I saw was this whole evolution of the family office and it, it, it just, the model doesn't work. So what I'm trying to do, and so what we're doing is I believe that in order to disrupt private equity and venture capital more efficiently, you need structure for family offices and they don't have it. it again, I'm generalized. So the industry, so the family offices, if only 25% make it to G2, 10 to G3 and 5 to G4 model doesn't work. Family offices are very inefficient, very fragmented, very siloed. Where'd they make their money? I mean, some some people made their money in the stock market or, or, or in real estate, but some people made their money selling Beanie Babies or Five Hour Energy or Guest Jeans or Giorgio Perfume or a chain of gas stations or a widget company. And they have a liquidity event and it's a totally different skill set to run a widget company or sell Beanie Babies than it is to take a half a billion, grow it to a billion, not spoil the shit out of the kids, do some wealth transfer, do some philanthropy and grow the asset base. So it's a huge mismatch. I couldn't run Beanie Babies, right? It just, I'm not qualified to do that. So you've got all this capital come in and in general, it's in inefficient hands. So I teach at Stanford, I'm in the board. And one of the things that I've been talking to them for the last couple of years was let's put together a, a family office center. And the goal of the center will be to, institutionalize family offices, make them more professional, make them less siloed. And for the family offices like the Pritzkers or the Dells that already have that, give them an area to network in a safe place where they're not being sold stuff every time. And that's what we're that's what we're trying to do. So we're launching it. We're having a family off. We're having a virtual conference coming up in June 24th and June 25th. But at the end of the day, the the, the goal of the center will I'm putting together a curriculum where it'll be graduates, undergraduates, and then also for family offices because there's so much money involved. There's 10 trillion dollars in family offices, and you combine that with the fact that there's 65 trillion coming downstream from the baby boomers, the next gen, or the next 10 years. That's massive. So this industry is going to get bigger. So without something to structure it, it's just going to continue the way it is. So that's what we're trying to do uh, at Stanford. That's what we're attempting to do. And I love the idea and the concept because you and I have both seen this kind of weirdly, the family office conference circuit 
and the vendors that support it and sponsor it has become its own financial advisory industry almost where <laughs> it's very hard to know who is there on the buy side, the sell side, uh, who's a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's a, it's a weird, weird market. Those conferences have become kind of bizarre and become so big in terms of their own businesses themselves globally that it's just changed dramatically in the last 10 years. It has. I mean, you're right. It's become a business unto itself. And I think that one of the reasons that, that I'm doing, so what I did is I went, I went to Kirkland and EY, right? These are Kirkland, certainly in my opinion, is the top law firm in the country. And EY, in my opinion, is the top accounting firm, at least in the family office space. And I just said, look, this is what it's going to cost to produce, to put on this conference, right? Nobody can sell anything. I don't want to have it. The, what conferences typically do is you pay 25 grand, you're, then you're the speaker, and then you're the expert in private equity, or you pay 25 grand and you're the sponsor and you're the expert in cannabis. Well, that's what's what. And then the problem is that family offices, most of the reason they go to these conferences is to meet other families, but there aren't a lot of family. It's service providers talking to other service providers, and there's a couple of family offices. And when the people realize who they are, they get swarmed. So the model, I think, is flawed. You need firms like EY and Kirkland that have the vision and universities like Stanford that say, look, we're not trying to make a profit out of this. We're trying to create an industry. And I do believe that as private equity and venture capital disrupted the public markets in the early 80s, I think it's going to have in the next five to 10 years that that family offices will disrupt venture capital and private equity in the very similar way. And you're starting to see, you know, there's a lot of things that have to happen. So there's a lot of people who are, everyone talks about creating alpha. Well, you know, that's great. I mean, everyone, you want to make money on deals, but it has to do with a lot more than that. It has to do with estate planning. It has to do with succession planning. It has to do with governance. It has to do with, there's so much psychology involved in it. And it, it's so holistic. So I, the beauty of what, what I'm doing is you're literally, it's like with maybe the second inning. So it's, it's forming now. And I want to just do my, whatever little part I can to help shape that because I do think at the end of the day, the good that can come out of this is that family offices are not corporations who have to report to shareholders and have the and the goal is to bring the share price up. A family office is an entity and with people and humans and, and they and they want to many of them want to do good. I mean, so impact investing, which is something twenty years ago I would tell you is stupid. I get it. It makes sense. A third of the family offices are investing in impact investing. Next three to five years, it'll probably be 50%. I'm 57. I never looked at the back of a can to see where it was made. I didn't, it was not that I was a bad guy. I just didn't do that. I didn't, you know, ask questions about how did so-and-so, if I'm going to buy a pair of jeans, you know, how do they treat their late? I just didn't think that way. And I think now with the internet, with technology, with information, more and more people have that information. In the next generation, they do care. It does make a difference. So impact is becoming a huge industry, impact investing. And the other value, I think, with, with family offices is from a philanthropic standpoint, I think that family offices are going to solve a lot of problems. So perfect example, my dad passed, who's my best friend, and he was a wonderful human. Uh, he passed away from prostate cancer at 57, which is my age today. When I was working in Wall Street, I worked for Drexel Burnham. Michael Milken basically created Drexel. 
when Michael Milken went to jail, he developed prostate cancer. When he got out of jail, he, rather than throw $100 million at the American Cancer Society, he built it like a VC firm. He put a million dollars in this crazy idea, two million here, three million, and he built it like a venture capital firm. And because of Michael Milken, you and I, if we live old enough, long enough, will die with prostate cancer, but not of prostate cancer. And I think that you need you can't run a philanthropy exactly like a business because it's not, but you could run it more like a business. So if you look at what what Milken's done, if you look at with the vaccines, with what Gates has done, I just think that you're going to see more good is going to come out of this. So it's not just about creating alpha, which is terrific. Everyone wants to make more money. But I think that it's going to be more beneficial to society because there will be more impact investing does make a difference. I mean, the climate is a there are issues that have to be addressed. And I think family offices are more apt to take that into consideration when investing than a corporation. So I'm very bullish on on family offices. I just it's just it's a huge animal and you, you're just trying to get your arms around it and try to guide it in, in, in the right way. But I do think this is this is going to be massive and it's going to be transformative. I agree with your assertion that these conferences or these educational pieces should be more focused on the qualitative issues because you and I, I think both know very rarely does a family blow up because of a quantitative issue because they, you know, screwed up their investments. I mean, it certainly does happen, but I think it's more, you know, of the (laughs) internal issues and, and divisiveness than anything else. And so what do you envision the future of this center of this conference looking like as it develops and you flesh it out? So my vision, my goal is to create a center at Stanford where we will have a curriculum where undergraduates and graduates obviously will be able to take courses in family offices, but not just so, you know, right now, if you're at Stanford, you're, and you want to be a deal guy, you're going to go into a venture capital firm or private equity firm that most of these kids don't even know what a family office is. So part of this has to do with education and really educating the public on what is a family office because it's so opaque and people just don't understand it. Once people peel the onion back and really understand what a family office is and how they're compensated and how they're motivated, it is a better model, period, end of conversation. It is. The problem is it's it's just the people who are, who made all the money, they might've created an app, they might've done a tech deal and sold it, they might've sold whatever it was, they don't have, so when you combine that, when you when when all of a sudden the family offices start hiring and paying and compensating people for the same way that Blackstone or Carlisle, Carlisle does, and they look at it long-term, I think five years from now, the top kids out of Stanford are gonna wanna work for a family office and not at a private equity or venture capital firm. And it's interesting because I I completely agree. And that's really what we've seen play out with the investment banking industry in in many ways, right? That used to be, if you were a really smart kid and went to a great school and you wanted to be a a deal person, you went to Goldman or JP and you worked at the investment banking group. But increasingly, a lot of that talent has gone to venture capital, private equity, and and I I guess really tech now. And, And so I think families, because of their creativity, because of their you know, long-term thought and just their flexibility and resources. I agree with you. I think they're going to be stealing a lot of that talent that used to go to VC, private equity, and tech. 
Well, they're, they're starting to, but again, it's just starting. And the fun part of the industry is, you know, we're, uh, like I said, I think we're in the second inning, so it's going to develop. But at, as more people get educated about this industry, as the industry becomes more professional, less siloed, less fragmented, more best practices instilled, it's just going to grow and it's going to keep eating into because it is a it is a superior model. It's just that the people in general who are running the family offices in many instances don't necessarily have all of the tools they need in order to do it. Once they do, things will change. And so you commented on impact investing, double bottom line businesses, et cetera. I mean, it used to be very siloed, right? You had the operating company or the family office that was doing the investing and then you had the philanthropic side, the foundation, and you know, other than for tax purposes, never should the two really meet. And, and that's become blurred and almost sort of a hybrid approach. I mean, we've all heard about ESG and impact investing and, and all these things happening. How do you think that plays out moving forward? I think it's going to grow exponentially. Uh, it's real. I mean, if you would have asked me 20 years ago, I would have said it's stupid. It makes no sense. I would have said, make as much money as you can investing. And then whatever you're going to do for society, give it away in philanthropy and have two separate buckets. I think because of technology and because of the internet and because of information, and because so many people know so many things and information at our fingertips that's changed. And people now it does make a difference. People know if a company doesn't treat people well. People do know if if they've got complaints for for various things. And the this is it's driven primarily by the so it's bottom up, not top down. It's driven not by the the patriarch or matriarch. Typically, in general, it's driven by the younger generation saying we have to do. How could you invest in this company? I mean, it used to just be don't invest in tobacco and alcohol companies because they're bad, and then you know you're you're, you're doing good. Now it's like there's ESG, there's a whole institute, whole industry around, well, what does that mean? What, is, what does it mean to do, to do good? So look, at the end of the day, everyone wants to make a lot of money and that's terrific, but at what cost? And I, I just think that family offices, because many of them are so philanthropic and many of them are holistic and they, they want, their intent is to make it last, that it'll have a lasting impact. So I think the long-term benefit for family offices is not that it's just going to create more alpha and going to be a better model, which it will. I think the long-term benefits for family offices is that from a philanthropic standpoint and from a societal standpoint, it'll do more good because these are better custodians of capital for society than corporations. That's my opinion. And just so that we can it's helpful for me. I mean, you, you've listed some families, but, and you don't even have to name names necessarily, but what are the themes and characteristics that you see recurring? I know you have a podcast, you interview some really cool people on there. Like who's getting it right and why do they get it right within this family office space? There are firms that get it right. There definitely are. And again, when, when I talk and say the, the industry is fragmented, siloed, inefficient, I'm generalizing. There are several family offices Pritzker's is a perfect example, like the Dell's family office, perfect example, that have institutionalized it. What are they getting right? Well, they're looking at it. Well, first of all, I, I think that how let's let's say you come out of your your bright kid, you come out of Stanford or Harvard, and you get hired by Carlisle. And they let's say they pay a quarter million dollars, a lot of money for a young kid coming out of school. Well, they don't look at they're paying you 250,000. They look at you as saying, I got this really bright kid. He could maybe make me 10 million. That's how they look at it. 
Family offices, however, typically in general now, will pay the $250,000 and they look at it as a cost. They say, it cost me $250,000. Now, it's a nuanced answer, but until they look at it and say, well, yeah, I am paying $250,000, but in order to get the talent I need to get the best return, I'm going to need to incent them. So that's starting to change. And more and more, so once compensation starts changing, then more and more of the young people won't necessarily want to just go to private equity or venture capital. And from a lot, if you're working with the right family, you know, you there's politics and everything. There's politics in family offices too, but it the alignment is just so much more in line with how things should be done with family offices than typically how Wall Street reacts and how they compensate people that the the sky's the limit for this industry. And I'm just very, very bullish on what's going to happen. Not only, again, not only the profits that will be made, because there will be a lot of profits made and a lot of young kids or even older people who get backed by family offices will do really well, but it's going to also do a lot of good for society. And I think, you know, we're at an inflection point where, you know, we just went through a pandemic. We went through an insurrection we went through. I mean, there was so much division in the country. Family offices aren't going to solve all that, but I think that they're going to help to bring people together more because they are more philanthropic and they more are more socially minded. Yeah, I completely agree. We jumped right into it, so we didn't even get into your bio or background. But you know, if, if people are interested in learning more about you and what you do, I mean, maybe give them kind of a broad stroke of, of your services you provide and and then also how best to kind of get in touch with you. Yeah. I mean, look, we, we just, I'm probably, you know, we're not a multifamily office and we don't chart. So, you know, I'm probably not going to be able to add a lot of value to most of your listeners. I mean, what we do is I invest, I started the company from a selfish standpoint that if I could put an X, uh, say I could put in a hundred dollars, well, if I could put $100 into a deal, okay, I'm the lowest guy on the cap table. I'm going to be the 50th call. But let's say I can get $1,000 or $10,000 and add, add zeros, obviously. I'll be the first call rather than the 15th call or the 30th call. So that's basically what we do. And so we don't charge anything. I kind of act as a funnel. And it benefits me selfishly because with just my capital, I, I wouldn't get incredible deal flow or, or, or execution with the capital that I can combine. I'm, I can't say for sure I'm always the first call, but I'm typically or most often the, if not one of the first calls, because we could place a lot of money very quickly. So I'm probably not going to add a lot of value to the, most of your listeners. I, I would say, you know, if you, if you have a net worth of between 10 to 200 million, which is again, an extraordinary amount of money, everything we're talking about is relative. Go to a multifamily office. You're much better off. They could do much better. I, I, that's not what we do. We just look at things through the lens of a creating alpha. So I, you know, so that that's and we basically vet the deal. So private equity, venture capital, real estate. That's what we do. So I, I think that most of the people, if they're interested in learning more, in many instances, they're going to be better off unless they're over 500 million and unless they really understand the market, they're better off going to a multifamily office. And, you know, I, I just see it so often and I see so many people make the same mistake because, you know, you're right. It is, you know, ego is a double edged sword, right? It's really good and sometimes really bad. 
And a lot of times people do things for ego. And right now it's cool to have a family office because that means you're really rich and you're really successful, but you might be better off putting your money with a multifamily office and doing whatever it is, whatever your passions are, whatever philanthropy you are yourself. So I, I think that'll be flushed out over the next five to 10 years as people start understanding it. And again, it's not going to really happen until we head into a recession. And when we do, in all these direct deals, all these you know family offices that, oh, I saved all this money because I didn't pay 220, I only paid 110, or I did a direct deal, and they're talking about the fees they saved. Well, when those deals go south, go south, that's when everything's going to change. And that's when people are going to say, you know what? It is a little more complicated than I thought, and I'm going to switch to a multifamily office. So I think the growth, the, the, there's, going be, there's going to be big growth in the single family offices. There's going to be bigger growth in the multifamily offices. So I, I just think it's a, it, it's a great model. And the multifamily office, if you think about it, you have the wire houses at the one, one end. That's not a good model because you know there's an inherent conflict of interest. They're technically not even fiduciaries. And then RAs came up, and RAs are a better model because they're fiduciaries, which is common sense. And so you know what they're trying to sell you or invest in is not because they're making more money. So that was a better model. And then the family, the multifamily office came. It was a better model than the RA because basically it just it was a holistic model. They didn't look at just alpha. They looked at, well, what about your tax consequences? What about your estate plan? What about your kids, grandkids, and things like that? So that's kind of the evolution. Wirehouse, RA, multifamily office. And the ones where I think, It'll be really interesting to see in five to 10 years how it plays out is the single family offices because they will hire the people. They will hire the right people. They will pay them the right money. They will make, they will do better. They will perform better. They will do more good. And it's just a, it's just a fun time to be in the industry. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I think the multifamily office model makes a ton of sense for a lot of people. And um, we've, we've made a, a similar choice recently. So Along those lines, we're bumming up against time, but I, I do want to ask this question. You do see some incredible deals. You know some incredible families that are really cutting edge on the investment side. I'm not asking you to name names. What are the best ideas that you've seen recently? It's, well, I, that's a tough question. You know, I, I think most I look interesting, at- compelling investment opportunities, maybe just within industry, sector, et cetera. Well, I think in, I look in themes. So, you know, I, first of all, I've never put a dollar in Bitcoin, in any cryptocurrency, which means, you know, I should have, right? Because it's gone way up. It's gone down a little bit, but, you know, it's gone way up. So I just don't understand it. I understand it, but I, you know, you can't do everything. You have to, you have to have themes and you have to have a thesis and, and beliefs in, in what it is you're doing. I think that there are going to be some tremendous opportunities. So right now for in real estate, I think um, single family rental is an area that is going to grow exponentially. You know, we do very close friends with the Jaggy family office. And I mean, they basically, and it's not a household name, but they were doing this 15 years ago. And now all of a sudden, a lot of the family offices are now getting into single family rental because it does make economic sense. So in real estate, I like that, you know, from an office standpoint, I, I'm not touching offices because I don't know how it plays out. I mean, we're social animals and I do think that we're going to, there's no, I'm in my, in my house right now. There's no way people are going to just continue to stay in their houses. People will come back and we need to be together. Um, so I don't know how the office will play out. I think hospitality will be big. I think, you know, a lot of these hotels have been destroyed. I think you'll see really good opportunities there. I think in private equity, you know, there's a lot of companies I, I think the most alpha that I found that can be created is probably the growth stage. So maybe, you know, and again, what, what series A, what series B, everything's been blurred. 
but certainly between A and B, maybe between B and C, I think that's really where the most alpha is. I mean, obviously you can make a lot of money in a, a startup investment, but most of them don't work. So I, I want to see some traction on it. So, you know, we, I like, you know, companies that are doing between the B and the C rounds, which is growth equity, which I think is where alpha is. And the other thing is it, it's an area where it's too small in many instances for the big players to get involved. And that's why the lower middle markets, I think, is where you could really create alpha because it, it, it doesn't make sense for Blackstone or Apollo to dabble in some of the things, but it makes sense for an individual. So I, I, I'm very bullish in general on, you know, medium and long term and, and the economy. You know, it's going to ebb and flow and there's going to be ups and downs, but you have to look at it from a 10 year time frame. And I think people are very myopic and they look at things from a, they say they look at things from a 10 year time frame, but they look at things from a three to six month time frame, And that's what they do. So what family offices do is they enable you to look at longer term perspective. And I think that's the biggest value they get. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Ron, thanks so much for joining us. It's been a lot of fun. Like I said, I was very impressed with the presentation however many years ago. And I appreciate you taking the time to come on here, especially on a, what is a natural, a beautiful Friday morning. Well, it's actually not a beautiful morning in Chicago. So Okay. <laughs> well, then I thank you regardless. Maybe uh, could you just for one time uh, at the end, again, the name of the Stanford conference and if people are interested in different. Well, I'm, so, I'm not, so I'm not really, it, it's really just for family office. So I don't really want to yeah. you know, put Understood. it out there. It, you know, it's just what I'm doing is, I think we're trying to take an industry and, and just put some framework around it. So it, the conference itself would not, it's literally just for family office, just for single family offices. And the people who are speaking are just family offices. So it's families okay. speaking to families. They're not selling product. The people who are speaking are not sponsors. So it's, I, if I had seen what I've seen, if I had to create, what would I think would add most value to, for a family office? That's what I've created. Well, I think it's much needed. Like I said, the conference circuit has become inundated with vendors and service providers, and it's a very challenging space. So kudos to you for putting it together. I know it's a lot of work. But with that, Ron, we'll, we'll leave it there. And I wish you the best of success and, uh, and luck with the conference and look forward to staying in touch. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. 
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.